You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, for the first time, we're hearing Alec Murdoch describe the roadside shooting in his own voice. It happened just a few months after the murders of his wife and son. Well, in this video, this is from the scene. Murdoch called 911 on September 4th, 2021, saying he'd been shot while on the side of a road in Hampton County. Well, today, the judge allowed the jury to hear audio from a phone interview between Murdoch and a state investigator. Now, in this audio, Murdoch admits he set the whole thing up, saying he thought it would be easier for his family if he were dead. And Murdoch admitted he asked Curtis Eddie Smith to shoot him. Now, this was his, this way, his surviving son Buster would then collect money from his life insurance policy. Uh, Smith is on the witness list, but it's still unclear if he'll be called to testify. Even though the roadside shooting happened after Maggie and Paul were killed, the judge decided to let the jury hear about it because the defense brought up Smith and their line of questioning. Now, the prosecution wanted the jury to hear this evidence because they say it shows a pattern of lies. Fox County's Grace Runkle is in Walterboro to break down today's testimony. Today's testimony was highly anticipated, especially after so much back and forth between the judge, the state and the defense about whether or not the jury would actually get to hear testimony about the side of the road incident. A sled agent took the stand to testify how Murdoch's story changed over time about what actually happened that day. Take a listen to this audio from an interview that agent had with Murdoch after he finally confessed it was all his idea. Why, did, why weren't you being, why weren't you truthful with us with, with when this initially happened? I don't have a good reason. I was in bad, bad, bad place. Did Alec Murdoch ever say that there was any risk or threat to Buster? He said no. He, no, he did not. He actually denied it when we asked. Did Alec Murdoch say that Curtis Eddie Smith had anything to do with the murders of Moselle? He denied it when we asked. And is there any evidence that Curtis Edward Smith had anything to do with Moselle? None whatsoever. That line of questioning from the state mirrors what we heard the defense ask another SLED agent yesterday. The defense has argued SLED focused in on Murdoch as a suspect too early and did not take into account other people like Curtis Eddie Smith or the people Smith bought drugs from. The state established Smith was not tied to the crime scene at Moselle and laid out a timeline that shows Murdoch only changed his story about the side of the road once SLED agents began to investigate Smith and saw large money transfers from Murdoch to Smith. The state has said that that testimony was key to establishing a pattern of deception. We've already heard from the defense that they're planning a pretty lengthy cross-examination, and that's where things will pick back up tomorrow morning. In Walterboro, Grace Runkle, Fox Carolina News. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst, your go-to true crime, real crime podcast for your fix of expert analysis and insight into cases where the victims are centred and the psychology of the perpetrators is explored using a wide-angled lens to spotlight their behaviour and hold them to account 
and to identify intervention and prevention opportunities. That's quite a mouthful, but it's what I do. So I think it's quite important to really highlight the important work of crime analysts. And I interview the best people who can provide unique insight, like Mandy Matney, who's been covering this case for more than four years now. You might remember that I said at the start of my analysis, I really wanted to speak with Mandy. And many of you asked for this conversation. So I really wanted to make it happen. And I spoke to Frank from our podcast platform, Ad Large, and he played a key role in introducing us and making this happen. So a big shout out to Frank. Thank you. I can't tell you how excited I was to speak with Mandy. What did you think about the interview? Fire, am I right? I think our work is really complimentary. Mandy asks great questions in the pursuit of the truth and justice. She wants to help people and she doesn't settle or fall for any BS. You can probably see why we're aligned. I think my work here on Crime Analysts offers insight and in-depth analysis to understand the why and the how with the micro and macro behaviour and the bigger picture as well as detailed timelining of the micro. And of course, I always want to centre victims. So let me know what you thought of our conversation and I'll be sure to pass it on to Mandy. I have a feeling this is the first of many future conversations. Mandy is a shiro. Okay, so back to my timeline, because I'm not done yet. And the final breakdown of the macro timeline will come in two more episodes. There's just so much to cover, and every time I think I'm at the end, I find some other twist or turn in the case that I really want to share with you. Now, across all my research and analysis, which has been extensive across many, many months, two key consistent aspects of Alec Murdoch's behaviour are that, one, he really knew how to schmooze people. And by schmooze, I mean manipulate. And secondly, he had no qualms about lying to get what he wanted. In fact, he lied and lied and lied again. He changed his story so many times when he was found out, but only when he was found out. For example, he had to change his story when video evidence placed him at the kennels with Maggie and Paul just minutes before they were brutally murdered. He was forced to explain that. Prior to that, he repeatedly said that he had not seen them, that he took a nap at night, yes, that's ridiculous, and then he went to his mother's house. He gave that account to the 911 call handler, the officers who first arrived at the scene, and thereafter in every interview. Then, when that was proven to be a lie, and many people recognised his voice on the first video that Paul posted, and that he was up at the kennel just minutes before Maggie and Paul were shot dead, he then tried to say that he lied because he didn't trust Sled. Take a listen to what he said when asked about it at his trial. Mr Murdoch, is that you? On the kennel video at 8.44pm on June 7th, the night Maddie, Maggie and Paul were murdered. It is. Were you in fact at the kennels at 8.44pm on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. Did you lie to Sled Agent Owen and Deputy Laura Rutland on the night of June 7th and told them that you stayed at the house after dinner? I did lie to them. Did you lie to Agent Owen and Agent Croft on the follow-up interview on June 10th 
that the last time you saw Maggie and Paul was at dinner? I did lie to them. And in the interview of August 11th, did you tell Agent Owen and Agent Craw, did you lie to them by telling them that you were not down at the kennels on that night? Yes. Alec, why did you lie to Agent Owen, Agent Croft, and Deputy Rutland about the last time you saw Maggie and Paul? As my addiction evolved over time, I would get in these situations or circumstances where I would get paranoid thinking. Uh, and it, it could be anything that, that triggered it. It might be a look somebody gave me. It might be a reaction somebody had to something I did. Um, it might be a policeman following me in, in a car. Um, that night, June 7th, after finding Mags and Paul, Papa, don't talk to anybody without Danny with you. All my partners were just repeatedly telling me that. I had a deputy sheriff taking gunshot test from my hands. I'm sitting in a police car with David Owen asking me about my relationship with my wife and my son. And all those things coupled together after finding them, coupled with my distrust for SLED, caused me to have paranoid thoughts. Normally, when these paranoid thoughts would hit me, I could take a deep breath real quick and just think about it, reason my way through it, and just get past it really quickly. On June the 7th, I wasn't thinking clearly. I don't think I was capable of reason. And I lied about being down there. Also, cast your minds back to the 911 call and the three interviews with SLED. I broke down the 911 call in episode 128 and the interviews in episode 130, 131, 133, 134 and 135 in granular detail. In my professional opinion, I didn't observe any sentiment of distrust regarding SLED. Now, it was very interesting to me that he had a different lawyer present at each interview, but Murdoch was in control of these interviews. He called Special Agent David Owen by his first name and later called him Sir when he was asked directly for the first time whether he killed Maggie and Paul. Murdoch seemed friendly towards him and it was only right at the end of the August the 11th interview, that last 1 minute and 26 seconds, where everything changed. And it changed because Special Agent David Owen interrogated Murdoch for the first time and he didn't like it. It changed because it was made clear that Murdoch was being viewed as a suspect because, as Special Agent David Owen said, he had to go with the facts and the evidence and that Murdoch could not be eliminated. As he said, and I quote, the family guns, the ammunition, nobody else's DNA was at the scene and therefore I have to put my beliefs aside and go with the facts. 
That's when it changed. After that, I would imagine Murdoch didn't trust SLED once he knew that he could not manipulate and or control them. And let's not forget the actual facts of the case. Murdoch told the call handler on the 911 call that he made at Moselle and the first two officers who arrived at the scene the exact same story about the nap, his mother's house, and not seeing Maggie and Paul from after they had dinner together and then him discovering their bodies allegedly later that night. That's what he said, and none of those individuals were SLED. So we can rule out that he lied because he didn't trust SLED. As I've said many times before, Murdoch would twist and turn things and almost sound convincing. And with someone like Murdoch, you have to bring your A-game. You have to know the details and the actual facts and evidence in order to know and understand that the narrative he spins and pedals is just that. It's his narrative and his opinion, which for the large part is just simply not true. And his poor me syndrome, as the weeks continued after Maggie and Paul's murders, was an all too familiar pattern to me, one that I have to say was predictable. You'll recall that I mentioned on the 6th of September, Murdoch released a public statement via Dick Harpootlian that he was stepping down from PMPED and that he was entering rehab for his so-called opiate addiction. Well, I want to share with you what was in that statement, because for me, again, it's just so instructive and shows the absolute audacity of this bloke, the sudden acute onset of his poor me syndrome and his calculated attempts for himpathy, which knows no bounds. Okay, brace yourself. Here we go. The murders of my wife and son have caused an incredibly difficult time in my life. I have made a lot of decisions that I truly regret. I'm resigning from my law firm and entering rehab after a long battle that has been exacerbated by these murders. I am immensely sorry to everyone I've hurt, including my family, friends and colleagues. I ask for prayers as I rehabilitate myself and my relationships. Wow. I just have to break this down. So the murders of his wife, Maggie, who he fails to name, and his son, Paul, who again he doesn't name, have caused him an incredibly difficult time in his life. Now, there are seven eyes and six mys in that short statement, which is revealing and speaks volumes. In a nutshell, this is all about him. The murders have caused an incredibly difficult time in his life. Well, how inconvenient of Maggie and Paul to have been murdered by him. His resigning from his law firm, but let's not forget that it was after he stole a lot of money from his own company and was found out. He says his long battle has been exacerbated by these murders. These murders... These is impersonal and creates distance between him and Maggie and Paul. Oh, and he's saying that his so-called drug problem and the murders caused the problems. The problems being the bad decisions that he now regrets. So for me, Murdoch's messaging is clear. It's the drugs and the murders that are the problem and not him. So if he goes to rehab for the drugs, hey presto, his bad decision-making disappears. 
So he's saying sorry for those bad decisions and calling on people to send him prayers as he rehabilitates himself and his relationships, as in his mind, that should be enough. And the God-fearing people in his community should now forgive him as he tries to put himself and his relationships back together. Because for Murdoch, they are the two single most important things to him. This is so instructive about him and what he values. He values himself and his relationships. It's so brazen. His sheer arrogance and narcissism are staggering. And it's so transparent. You see, also, the blinding glimpse of the obvious for me is regarding the omissions, what Murdoch fails to mention. He doesn't mention any thought or sympathy or concern for what Maggie and Paul went through in their final moments and how horrific it must have been for them. He fails to mention that the police have to catch whoever did this and that he won't rest until that happens. He fails to mention any modicum of survivor guilt which is often present. Nope, nothing about any of these things. Murdoch only wants people to think about him and to hold him in their prayers. I mean, this is some next-level male entitlement. Let's not forget he wrote this in the knowledge that he murdered Maggie and Paul. His male entitlement and his male privilege, again, because he is the most important person in the universe. And that sums it up right there what this case is all about. The me, myself and I of Alec Murdoch and protecting him and his name and his reputation at all costs. That's some spectacular leakage. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. On the 13th of September, SLED opens an investigation into Murdoch's alleged fund misappropriation from his law firm. And on the same day, Dick Hartputlian called SLED. You know, SLED, who Murdoch apparently didn't trust. Well, here he is, not trusting SLED and telling them all this information. Take a listen to this. No, I figured out where Right, telephone conference interview of Mark Murdoch, 91321. Whose voice is that? Uh, Special Agent Jomar Albayalde. Is he present with you after this interview? Yes, he was. <coughs> hey, Jim, this is Brian Kelly and Jomar Albayalde with SLED. How are you? Hey, Brian and Joe. Uh, yes. Uh, we had an office uh, over here in Atlanta with Alec and Dick, and, um, and I'm still with the phone here on the table next to Alec, and 
Well, let me, let me start running pre-calls. Um, we only have about 30 to 40 minutes before we have to get out of here. Okay, okay, okay no problem, sir. Sorry about that. We, we, you caught me. I was halfway to Somerville, so I had to turn around and get into a place. Or... And I'm, I'm sorry, but we, we were late getting here to Seattle. Once we got in here, we had to have a long discussion. Okay. I'd like to walk him through the questions, which will then allow you to question them, but give you some sort of rather than just sort of wandering around. Okay. Okay. Well, before we get started, can we just have, uh, for the purpose of our notes, you know, obviously we, we, we prefer not to do telephone interviews. Um, this is how y'all requested, so obviously, you know, we don't really have a choice. Um, but we just, could, could I just I'm going to need Alex to identify himself, you know, on the call. Uh, and, you know, basically what we do is I'm going to ask him his, his date of birth and the last four of his social. Okay, go ahead. Alex, just go. Hello. Alex, you, give me your full name. Okay, Richard Alexander Murdoch. Okay, and what's your date of birth? My date of birth is May 27th, 1968. Last four of your social. Okay. Um, and I understand that, you know, obviously this is a unique situation conducting this, t uh, this interview over the phone. Um, we need to, uh, um, obviously you've been receiving uh, some, some treatment. So our, uh, you know, just for the overall, you know, sake of your, your competency to be, be giving us information, uh, are you right now, you know, sound body, sound mind? Yes, sir. Okay. Are you talking to us willingly? Yes, sir. Okay. All right, uh, Dick, um, uh, go, go ahead, sir. Okay, so let me say for the record, this attorney, Joe Griffin, and Dick are doing it here. We've spent the last hour talking to him. Um, we believe uh, that he is a sound mind, mind and body, and that he understands and that he has no way to manage that state. Okay. He is perfectly confident to answer these questions. Now, we're going to, we're willing to We've advised that we're going to talk about the shooting incident a week ago Saturday, um, where he was uh, shot in the head. How that happened, and why it was done. Okay. We don't want to talk about uh, what happened in Motel, um, and we don't want to talk about anything involving the finances at the at the, um, at the, uh, the law firm. Is that okay? Uh, yes. Okay. So, um, Alex, let's talk about. Last Saturday morning, um, and let me go through this briefly. Um, who did you meet with and talk to last Saturday morning? We met with Jim Griffin and Chief Chester. And that was answered, and I met with Mr. Wilson at my mom's house. Okay. And, um, he, and you and Chris were talking about what? About everything I had done. Okay, everything you had done concerning finances. Finances still live. Okay. Now, um, were you um, taking, well, first of all, let me back up what you say. Have you had a long-standing Oxycontin or opioid addiction issue? Yes, sir. How many years? Uh, the best I can remember, around 20 years, 18 to 20 years. Okay. Now, um, on this particular day, on this Saturday, were you taking uh, the Oxycontin or taking any opioids? I had taken some, but, you know, I was taking, I'd, I'd given it all 
that I had someone else. And I was, I was, I'd taken some at like 4 a.m. So I was having some withdrawals. Okay. And um, the previous day, the news come out about uh, your uh, embezzling or taking client money or law firm money. Is that correct? That's correct. And how would you describe your state of mind at that time? I was in a very bad place. What does that mean? Uh, I, I thought it would be better for me not to be here anymore. What do you mean by not be here anymore? I thought that it would make it easier on my family for me to be dead. Yeah, easier um, with some financial gain to your family if you were dead? I had a fair amount of life insurance debt. Give me how much? No, off my head, but like $10 million, $12 million. Okay. And so you decided to end your life. That's correct. And tell these sweat agents um, how you went about arranging that. I called Curtis Eddie Smith on the telephone. Okay, now let's stop a second. Who is Curtis Eddie Smith? Curtis Eddie Smith is the primary person who I purchased bills from for years. And some weeks you would give him how much money for bills? I mean, it would be in my records, but if, I mean, we had weeks where there would be like fifty, sixty thousand dollars that you would give him for bills. Yes, sir. Okay, so you've known him for how long? Years. Years. So, um, did you call him that morning? Yes, sir, I did. That day? About what time? I'm not sure. Okay. But I asked him to... Was it after you met with Jim Griffin? It was after I met with Jim Griffin. After you met with Chris Wilson? I believe so. Okay, and when you called him, what did you ask him? I asked him to meet me. Did he meet you? He did. Where did he meet you? He met me, um... Now, not too far from my mom's house. Where? He was on the side of the road. I think at the, at the funeral home. At the funeral home. Okay. And did y'all talk? Not there. He followed me in town. To where? To over where I stopped by the Sunoco gas station. Okay. Did y'all have a discussion there? Yes, sir. Did y'all get out of your car or just in, the, in your vehicle? I don't think we got out of our cars. And what, got, what vehicle were you in? I was in um, my wife's Mercedes. And what was he in? He was in a gray pickup truck. Okay. And um, what, what did y'all discuss? I told him that things were getting ready to get really bad and that I would be better off not here. And I asked him to shoot me. And you asked him to shoot you? That's correct. And what was his response? I mean, I think at first he was a little surprised. But then he said, okay. Did you tell him where you wanted him to shoot you? Yes, sir. Where'd you tell him you wanted him to shoot you? In the head. And did, you, did you tell him how you were going to arrange that? What, I mean, what, what, what was going to be the logistics of that? Yes, sir. Go ahead. I thought he followed me out and then uh, I would make a flat tire and he would go past me and turn around and come back and do it. And did he follow you out? He did. Now, did, where did you get the gun? I gave it to him. Where did you give it to him? We stopped somewhere on Sarkahatchee Road, I believe. Did you all have a discussion there? Did you just give him the gun? We didn't have much discussion. When you say much, was there any discussion? I, I'm not sure. It was, I was worried about cars coming, and so it was a very fast thing. You gave him what kind of weapon did you give him? A revolver pistol. What caliber? 38. 
So he called you out to where? Sorry, Hatch, brother. Okay, and you pull off the road? Yes, sir. And he pulled off the road. What did you do? I stopped. Um, made my tire flat. How'd you make your tire flat? With a knife. Whose knife? Mine. What did you do with the knife after you made your tire flat? Threw it. Which tire? Back driver's side. Back driver's side. You threw it where? Across the road. Across the road? Yes, sir. Okay. I mean, is it, was there woods over there, a ditch, or you know? Just grass, like stick grass. Okay. And after you did that, he passed you, or did he pass you, you were doing that? I think that he was, in, I think that he had already passed me, he was in front of me, he went down the road, he turned around and come back. Now, when he was coming back, you were giving up his, what was your intention? For him to kill me. Okay, and when he came back... Uh, did he stop? Did he pull up, you know? He did. And when he pulled up, did you look at his face? I don't think so. So what happened next? I stood close to his car. And? He shot me. Where did he shoot you? He missed and hit me in the very back of the head. Did you catch the start of that? Jim Griffin stipulated that they did not want to talk about the murders of Maggie and Paul or anything involving finances. Wow. It's so illuminating how they called the shots and have no qualms about doing this because these are powerful men who've been doing this all of their lives. And Sled seemed to be okay with that, despite the fact that Murdoch was the prime suspect in Maggie and Paul's murders. The sheer audacity of those lawyers and Murdoch to lay down these rules for the interview to law enforcement under these circumstances just speaks volumes to me. These men are used to controlling the narrative and used to winning. They're used to being in a position of power. It's just another day in the patriarchy. And did you notice Murdoch's voice? Noticeably, it's much weaker than when he was actually allegedly shot. Using this feeble voice... He said that he had an 18 to 20 year drug habit. I'm just queuing up the violins. The poor me syndrome and the Hympathy Roadshow are out in force. According to this version, Murdoch allegedly took drugs at 4am that morning and was having some withdrawals and that he was in a very bad place and it was better for him not to be here anymore. And by the way, he got the pills from his drug dealer, Curtis Eddie Smith. For me, it's no surprise that within days Murdoch changed his story about the so-called roadside shooting being a stranger. Remember he said he didn't know him, but he would recognise that real nice guy. Well, he changed his story and named his mate Curtis Eddie Smith as the shooter. The same fast Eddie that he was desperately trying to get hold of at the hospital, even offering hospital staff money to use their phone. But did you notice his hesitation in this part of the storytelling? He named Curtis Eddie Smith as his alleged drug dealer for years and he said that he called him up and asked him to shoot him. To shoot Alec Murdoch. And apparently Curtis Eddie Smith just said, OK, that doesn't sound odd at all. No, it sounds absolutely and utterly bonkers. Because it is. It makes zero sense. Also, there's a noticeable power imbalance between these two. They ran in totally different circles. 
Why would Curtis Eddie Smith just agree to shoot Le Grand Fromage Alec Murdoch with no questions asked or trying to talk him out of it or no concern about what would happen to him, Curtis Eddie Smith, if he got caught? And as I've also said before, if Curtis Eddie Smith was going to shoot him in the head and Murdoch was willing for this to happen, why would he miss? It's just so ridiculous. But Murdoch continued on and said that this was about life insurance money for Buster. It's simply ridiculous, but that didn't stop Murdoch, who said that the life insurance money was for Buster. For the $8 million or the $10 million or the $12 million, the vagueness of the number alone screams BS. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Also, why would Murdoch stage his own homicide for Buster? He murdered his own wife and son in cold blood, for goodness sake. He doesn't care about anyone other than himself. And Mark Tinsley also testified that there was no evidence of Murdoch having a life insurance policy and no one has ever seen it. And Mandy talked to that too when I interviewed her. So there's that. In addition to this, the fact it was a shooting a drive-by shooting by a stranger, I have no doubt he was trying to stage his own homicide to make it look like the same killer or killers as who shot Maggie and Paul. He wanted to make it look like the killer or killers had returned and he failed. Miserably. But that didn't stop Sled from arresting Curtis Eddie Smith the day after this ridiculous interview. You know, Sled who Murdoch didn't trust. Curtis Eddie Smith was then charged with assisted suicide, assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature, pointing and presenting a firearm, insurance fraud and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. That's mind-blowing to me given that Murdoch was not, and is not, a credible witness or person. And let's not forget, at the time he was the prime suspect in the double murders of Maggie and Paul, which was also known by Sled, along with his financial crimes. So why did Sled buy into this story? It makes little sense to me. And did they ever see his life insurance policy? Two days later, Murdoch was arrested on the 16th of September in connection to an insurance fraud scheme that court documents said involved Murdoch arranging his own killing. He was charged with insurance fraud, conspiracy to commit insurance fraud and filing a false police report. Murdoch surrendered and was released on a $20,000 bond and after surrendering his passport, he was able to return to rehab. I wonder, how many other perps are allowed to do this? It's absolutely mind-boggling to me how much special treatment Murdoch received. The day before, on the 15th of September, a criminal investigation into Gloria Satterfield's death was reopened by request of a New Hampton County coroner and information gathered during a separate investigation. Gloria's son sued Murdoch, claiming they never received insurance payments allegedly made after her death. 
On the 22nd of September, Connor Cook filed a lawsuit against Murdoch, claiming he orchestrated a campaign to falsely accuse Cook and that Murdoch should have stopped Paul from having access to the boat because of his alcohol issues. On the 26th of September, PMPED law firm issued a statement claiming Murdoch lied and stole from them. They also claimed they had no prior knowledge of any financial scheme or drug addiction. Now that's interesting to me on both counts. They brought in a forensic accountant in May and he was challenged in June. And now this is September. And the fact that no one noticed any drug-related behaviour from Murdoch speaks volumes. That's because, most likely, there wasn't any drug-related behaviour. As I said when I spoke with Mandy, it's just another manipulation, one of the many. On the 28th of September, Gloria Satterfield's sons filed a motion for Murdoch's arrest and detention until the money he embezzled from her estate was returned. On the 29th of September, Judge Clifton Newman was ordered to take over the Murdoch criminal cases by the Supreme Court. And thank goodness for that. Albeit sadly, his own 40-year-old son had just died of cardiac issues. Now on a personal level, I'm sure that this case was a distraction for him to some degree, but it must have been incredibly difficult for him to hear a case like this before him. I think it's a testament to him how he handled and managed the case. I'll say more about that another time. On the 1st of October, Gloria Satterfield's sons reached a settlement with Corey Fleming, who was accused of working with Murdoch. On the 6th of October, PMPED sued Murdoch for allegedly stealing client funds. On the 14th of October, Murdoch was arrested in Orlando, Florida, outside of a rehab centre for two felony counts of obtaining property by false pretenses. On the 14th of October, Curtis Eddie Smith appeared on NBC's Today Show and explained his version of what went on on September the 4th. Take a listen to this. Prominent South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch has been surrounded by a series of mysterious tragedies this year, starting with the double murder of his wife and son this summer. New this morning, one of Murdoch's attorneys says that authorities consider Alec a person of interest in that case in an interview with Fox Carolina News, though his attorneys continue to deny he had any involvement in the murders. In September, adding to the mystery, Murdoch said he was shot in the head on a rural road. Law enforcement now believes Murdoch conspired with Curtis Eddie Smith to kill him as part of an insurance fraud scheme. To be clear, does your client maintain utter and complete innocence in this case? Go ahead. I didn't shoot him. Are you innocent of everything? I'm innocent. Yeah. If I'd have shot him, he'd have dead. He's alive. Smith now telling his side of the story. Smith tells me he had no idea what Murdoch's plans were when he agreed to meet a man he called his close friend on a remote road in Hampton County, South Carolina. He says Murdoch showed up with a gun. And he's standing like this. He said, you gonna shoot me? I said, no. He said, well, you just gotta do it. And he, he made his move like, like this, you know? And I just grabbed his arm. You, you took the gun? I shoved it behind him, between me and him. It went off. The gun went off. Did it hit him? Did the bullet no. hit him? No. So that, I, that, that story there where he no got- There's no blood on me, there's no blood on him. He didn't get shot in the head. No, we bounced off his car and 
I kind of made a move to get the gun, and he hit the dirt, you know. And What percent are you positive that he didn't get shot? If you could put a percentage on it. Thousand. There's no, he didn't get shot. Murdoch's lawyers declined to comment. They've maintained their client suffered a head wound. The Hampton County Sheriff's incident report initially said Murdoch did not have any visible injury, but a corrected version released shortly after says there was a visible injury. Murdoch's lawyers say Smith took advantage of a man in the throes of a decades-long opioid addiction who was grieving the unsolved murders of his wife and son. They claim Murdoch wanted to end his life so his surviving son could collect on a $10 million life insurance policy. Curtis Eddie Smith said that he did not shoot Murdoch. He said Murdoch was lying. What's interesting about this clip is that when he explained what happened, he's acting it out physically, which points to veracity. And he said that Murdoch did not get shot in the head and that he's 1,000% positive that he did not get shot. Interestingly, the police report initially said that he did not have any visible injuries but that report was later changed. That's very curious. So too was the response from Dick and Jim. So in response to the NBC interview, Dick and Jim, Murdoch's lawyers, released medical records saying that Murdoch had an entry and exit wound as well as a fractured skull. However, the four pages of the actual medical notes from Memorial Health in Savannah, Georgia, sent to the Greenfield News, showed Murdoch was treated for a laceration to his scalp, a small subdural hemorrhage, and a skull fracture consistent with two superficial bullet wounds to the head. A skull fracture consistent with two superficial bullet wounds to the head is not quite the same thing as what Dick and Jim said. But don't let that get in the way of a good story, Dick and Jim. On the 16th of October, affidavits were released claiming Murdoch coordinated with Gloria Satterfield's family to sue himself for insurance money that he then pocketed. On the 19th of October, a South Carolina judge denied Murdoch's bond and ordered him to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. On the 22nd of October, SLED released the 911 calls from September 4th. Witnesses said it looked like a setup. Well, yes. I mean, that's because it was. And on the 26th of October, Gloria Satterfield's estate announced they reached a settlement with Murdoch's former law firm. On the 28th of October, Randy Murdoch, Murdoch's brother, sued Murdoch. The suit claimed Murdoch borrowed $90,000 from Randy and that $46,500 remained unpaid. On the 29th of October, Murdoch signed a judgment to speed up the court process, which would have allowed Randy to collect the money. However, an emergency court order halted further action. John Parker of PMPED also sued Murdoch for the $477,000 he claimed he lent Murdoch that he never repaid. Murdoch again signed a judgment, but an emergency order halted further action. On the 12th of November, Murdoch asserted the right not to self-incriminate in response to an embezzlement lawsuit filed by PMPED. On the 19th of November, Murdoch was indicted with four counts of breach of trust with fraudulent intent, seven counts of obtaining signature or property by false pretenses, seven counts of money laundering, eight counts of computer crimes and one count of forgery. On the 2nd of December, Anthony Cook filed a lawsuit against Murdoch and Parkers for the 2019 boating accident. 
On the 9th of December, there were seven new indictments and another 21 criminal charges against Murdoch announced, including nine counts of breach of trust with fraudulent intent, seven counts of computer crimes, four counts of money laundering and one count of forgery. On the 13th of December, Murdoch's bond was set for $7 million. Circuit Judge Alison Renee told Murdoch and his legal team at the virtual hearing that the entire $7 million must be posted for Murdoch to go on house arrest. And she also stipulated there would need to be electronic monitoring and that he'd have to get counselling and be randomly drug tested. Dick Hartpoolian replied that Murdoch was impecunious. So in other words, he pled poverty and said that Murdoch had no money to post bond. I mean, the chops of Murdoch and Dick. Murdoch's paying his lawyers somehow, right? I don't believe they're working for free. You really have to hear this for yourself. Take a listen to this. Just moments ago, a bond hearing wrapped up for prominent South Carolina lawyer Alec Murdoch. You might recall that in June, his wife and son were murdered. Investigators say last month he tried to orchestrate his own execution. But today's bond hearing is actually connected to separate charges of theft from a death settlement meant for the family of his former housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. NBC's Katie Beck is in Columbia, South Carolina for this hearing. Walk us through what happened, Katie, and and what's next in this legal battle that Murdoch faces. Well, hey, Chris. Yeah, Murdoch was denied bond today. I think that was a surprise to both the prosecution and the defense. Both were expecting that he would be walking out of here today. The judge said he simply didn't trust that Murdoch was in a mental state to be able to handle that responsibility safely. So he has asked for a psych evaluation to be done by the defense and presented back to the court, at which time another bond hearing will happen and he will make another determination on whether or not Murdoch should be given bond. Now, this case that you're referencing was a 2018 case. It was a wrongful death suit after uh, Murdoch's former housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, allegedly fell at the home and died several weeks later. There was about a three million dollar amount of money that he is accused of stealing out of that settlement that was supposed to go to the former housekeeper's sons. In court today, he was called a liar and a cheat uh, by Satterfield's son's attorneys. They said that he has been a stain on the legal system here in South Carolina and that justice needs to be accountable, including people that are in prominent positions and maybe have a lot of means. Uh, one of the attorneys for the Satterfields, Eric Bland, spoke after that hearing. Here's what he had to say. I think it's a good day for justice, uh, as the arguments that my partner and I made about lawyers who mistreat and steal from their clients. It's a it's a real stain on our profession. And I think that moved the court. But we're pleased. We thought that Alex is a danger to not only uh, our clients, but society. Now, the judge also heard from South Carolina investigator who have been working these investigations into Alec Murdoch today, listing off several things that SLED uh, is investigating that pertain to him. The judge, I think, considered that a factor as well. All of these other pending investigations. Chris, as you know, this is a tangled legal web uh, of past and present events. And this judge just simply wasn't convinced that he should be given bond. It's a tangled, tangled web indeed. And it's a tangled web, all of one man's doing, all of Alec Murdoch's own spinning and own weaving. I'm going to leave it there and let you process all that you've heard. And I'm telling you, you won't want to miss the last episode on the timeline.
Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.